Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Fast Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Check out shares of Cisco. That stock's soaring after reporting earnings moments ago. The conference call is going on right now. We'll bring you all the details. Plus, semi showing signs of life, exiting correction territory after getting taken down by trade war tensions. But is the worst really over for the group? A top analyst explains. We start off with the bond yield breakdown. The 10-year near its lowest levels of 2019 breaking below 2.4% after weak economic data in China and disappointing retail sales here at home. A sign perhaps a global slowdown is already hitting closer to home? Is this bond market flashing a warning sign for us? Just how worried should you be? Tim? Uh, you got to love the 007. I mean, we love entendre on this show, so let's make this very clear. The bond market should... Should you be concerned? Um, yes. And as I'd like to say, and I've said it probably way too many times for a lot of viewers, but a growth scare is much worse than an inflation scare. I'd rather see more Fed than less Fed right now. And as much as people want to see rate cuts, uh, I do think the dynamic where, if anything, we've got a Fed that's nowhere near uh, cutting any t- uh, hiking anytime soon, whether they're h- cutting or not, who knows? Bottom line, um, I think we're at 220 before we're at 280 on the 10-year. Um, the key really right now for me would be credit. <laughs> Um, but to the extent that you see sovereign bond yields around the world moving lower, uh, almost in unison, once again, this is a sign that growth is scarce. Right. You're making the point, Karen, that even though the 10-year yield is low, the spreads actually are, right. look better. The sp- well, the 210 mm-hmm. spread is actually has widened. And it, if you think about it, it was, I don't know, 21 basis points or so. 21 on a very low, right, on a very low 10. So that that's shows a pretty dramatic steepening. I always say when twos tens get narrow that banks are not a giant two ten bet. And I'll say the same even well now it's you know, it's it's less narrow. It's still not a giant two ten bet. But you know, I'm a I'm a little bit concerned. I, I agree with Tim. I think we were seeing a I used to think the Fed has left the building. Now I think they're creeping back in as a dove, mm-hmm. more dovish, even. Yeah, but more dovish. And and I think I think we will probably see a, a cut. Isn't the two ten spread telling you something different? The two is more reflective of maybe where our central bank is. When you look at where the Fed they funds control the short end, and then yeah. when you look at the ten year, it's more reflective of I guess market participants' view of growth. So when I think about this, and you just mentioned this, Tim, you know, growth scares are the scary sort of thing. I go back to 2015 when we were in a situation where we were worried about the Chinese devaluing the currency. Yep. We were worrying about Chinese uh, global growth. Where was the dollar back then? The Dixie was about the same place it is right now. Crude was about the same place right now. Actually, rates in 2015. We're right around two and a half on their way down to one sixth the next year or so. And I think it's really important to remember that the S&P 500 went to like 1800 in that period, that double bottom that we had in the summer, fall of 15 into 16, that sort of thing. So, you know, 
there seems to be a very big disconnect right now between the credit and the equity markets. The equity market's just a few percent from all-time highs, given what rates are telling us, to me, is a bit troubling. And you side with the, what the bond market is telling us. I, I do, because yeah. it, it's such a massive market, you know, and it's, it's right. much more massive than, you know, and, and I think it's also important to remember real quickly that, you know, you can make whatever excuses for the V-bottom that we had in December, but we are up 20-some percent from there, and people did not see an S&P 500 at 2350 at any point in 2018, um, you know, and they did. They had it. At the I think end. the biggest concern I have right now is looking at this is, is are we are we at the low or do we see a little bit further down? I know one of you guys mentioned at the low on the yield. I said, two, I said 220 before 280. Yeah. Right. I'm the guy. And, and I I'm almost wonder, is it 2%? I mean, I, I'm you looking at the... Lower. Yeah, I do. And is that a problem for your view on the equity markets? Uh, it, it is a definite headache for the equity mm-hmm. markets, and that's why I think you got to be extremely selective because it seems like until we start to see that change, Mel... That seems to be something that definitely is a headwind, I think, right now in terms of the equity markets for, forward from here. Yeah. I mean, a big, a big thing this morning also was negative on German bonds, and yep. that really impacted yep. also the trade in the 10-year yield. So part of it, obviously, is what's going on elsewhere in the globe. And yep. so I guess that, that really brings us back to this question of, is there a global slowdown going on right now as we witness weaker-than-expected retail sales data and in industrial production data out of China you know, the Eurozone PMIs, what, what have they been doing lately? Well, just, just because the trade rhetoric ratcheted up uh, a week ago only, um, before that we were actually saying, I was saying, I actually thought we've seen, we're seeing a bit of an inflection point in, in some, that the central bank stimulus that certainly is, is now a, a chorus of central banks, not just a few, every one of them was starting to have some dividends. So what's happened in a week? We've heard a lot of headlines. Um, what has happened in terms of the leading indicators? Nothing has really changed. I, I think when you have a fragile state of recovery, though, everything that's happened in the last week is very troublesome. Dan talked about, you know, what's going on in, in credit markets. I, I actually think despite that yields are lower right now, the good news for equity markets is that credit markets haven't fallen apart. Uh, yes, the HYG and the JNK, if you want to look at those two ETFs, that's measuring high yield. Very, very important. We've talked about it on this show. Look, about a week ago, the Fed came out with their financial conditions report, and they talked about how the leverage loan index and that leverage loans in this country have gone up almost 20% year over year. If you start to see U.S growth go 1%-ish or south of that, people are going to be very concerned, not about high yield, they're going to be concerned about the biggest part of the credit market, which is basically triple B, and that's a problem. Right, so triple B falling into junk, being demoted off an index would into be, another would index, be devastating. that would cause massive disruption. Yeah, right. We haven't seen that mm-hmm. at all yet, but things can change really quickly in the credit markets, we know. I really didn't love this, uh, you know, this rally off of the tweet today, you know, or off of the, the, the auto tariffs. I feel like that Trump was crying wolf and uncle at the same time, and that this repeated attempt to manipulate what, the market. When you cry uncle, have- what are you doing? Crying up and saying, no terror. We're, oh, we're, I, I just didn't know. I'm truly you know, asking like when, what you know, the term means. You know, when I, I, you ever have some guy your twist your arm behind uncle. your back? I mean, <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> show, Pete, show, I'm Pete, asking. Show you. Exactly. <laughs> I dare you. And so I, I hate that. I feel like, you know, that I, I'm not opposed to the general play hardball with China. I'm opposed to the, the seeming lack of any, you know, strategy that's thought out several steps in advance as opposed to a very reactionary one. I hate that for the market. It reminds me of, you know, Elon putting out, uh, Elon Musk putting out targets of production or profitability or whatever it is, and those having less and less impact because they're less and less meaningful. Mm -hmm. So I I don't like that we're in that right now. 
Uh, you know, Does I, it buy us time, though? I mean, the way I viewed it was the president's going out there, and this is one more issue on top of everything else that's going on. This is one more issue, right? So the president's buying six months of time is the way I viewed it. And the, and the market's like that because how long do we think this trade war or skirmish or whatever word you want to put on this, how long is this going to last? Is it going to be another? Right. I mean, or, or, or hopefully not that long. I but. hear what you're saying about him buying time. I get that. But if you're a CEO and you've got decisions to make about about capital where, spending, capital spending or where to source or things like that. You know, you kind of have to pull in the reins because... We've seen that. Yeah. yeah so I think we're going to see that. I don't even think we've really started to see it. No, we I, talked about, we heard a little bit about it from Macy's today. We're going to see more of it. I don't love that. I, I, I agree. So my point is that if you think about where we went from March to June of last year, that's really uh, the stick that was stuck in the bicycle spokes of the global market that led to where we got to in the fall where people were very concerned. Oh, and by the way, the Fed seemed to be more aggressive on hiking. And then you had October through December. What do we, what do, we do now then, Pete? Well, volatility is still pretty low. Yeah, yeah, that, that's about exactly where I was going. I, we have incredible volume right now, Mel. In, in terms of the derivative markets, I mean, Dan can speak to this as well, but we're averaging about 19 million a day this year. Actually, in the month of May so far, we're averaging 23 million a day. So it's an amazing number right now. We see volume is there, but you look at volatility. We had that big spike up to 23. We have not gotten back up there yet. And, and, and the interesting thing is this market's all over the place, right? I mean, yesterday alone, just that late day move and the fact that we're trading at 18, 19, now we've pulled back a little bit more. I still think when you're talking about, I think the new market stretch of, of where we're looking is probably 13 to 15 on the low side and probably 20 to 23 on the higher side. We're back to that area where I think it's okay to start buying again. I know Karen and I were talking about this last week. You were talking about all that volatility you owned. You wanted to start selling it when it was over 20, which is, I think, the right way to treat this market right now. All right. For more on what the bond breakout could mean for stocks, let's go off the charts with Jason Hunter, head of fixed income over at J.P. Morgan Chase. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, and we started off our conversation here on the desk talking specifically about that 10-year yield. So what do you what do you see going on here? Yeah, so we'll start with our 10-year note view and then go on to equities and say what that means for that. Um, really what it comes down to what our view on 10-year note yields is evolving ever since the trade headlines hit. If we look at the chart and just go take a step back for a minute, um, as we got into late March, we started to get a lot of technical signaling uh, that was very similar to what we saw in the summertime of 2016 as global PMIs bottomed, global bond yields bottomed with that and tracked that higher through the summertime. The same systematic signaling that fired then started to fire in late March of this year. And that also came hand in hand with first quarter performance in semiconductors that were really, really strong, um, something we focused on heavily year-on-year performance of the semiconductor index does a pretty good job in forecasting potential turns in global PMI data. So the cross-market dynamic and the technical signaling all fit and called for a move to higher global yields as we move through the summertime. You can quickly see that semis are one of the most quick to react on trade headlines. So this is very much a trade story from the middle of last year when things started to go south as things started to turn and bottom in the fourth quarter of last year when the trade story started to flip in the other direction. So naturally, this is very much in flux. And unfortunately, this is going to be probably a headline-driven story. There's a limit of what we can get with actual technical signaling. Going back to the yield chart, we're now approaching those same yield levels again, 230, 235, the same levels that contained the rally back in March, where we got that signaling. Um, as the markets traded sideways after the rally that triggered that, things have had time to normalize. So to generate the same type of overbought signaling that would generate the same type of systematic sell signals again, you probably need something closer to 220, two and a quarter 
by current readings. That can change as time progresses. But from what we could see right now, that's where we think the market would need to get to uh, in order to get that level of sell setup. Um, and for the time being, as long as the market's richer, then really this 241 area, that little pattern that we broke out of, and then the 252 gap, that was the Sunday night headline gap that, that started this whole risk-off move. As long as we're richer than that, for the time being, the market's got a bullish bias on rates until proven others otherwise. So what does that mean uh, for equities? As we look at the S&P chart, we've seen a similar risk-off move uh, unfold. Um, what we see now for equities, uh, though, is, is a market that's holding key support that we've highlighted for the past two weeks ever since those headlines hit. And that's really the 2800-2840 area. That's been a big inflection for the market for a while, even going back to, to last year. Um, and as long as that holds, you're not triggering a, a lot of negative momentum signaling. That If you look underneath the 2800 area of the 100-day moving average, 200-day moving average, the one-year volume-weighted average price for a number of the larger ETFs uh, that track the S&P 500, and other you know, three-month, six-month, 12-month momentum measures all sit just below that in the 2700s. Um, you know, so in a certain sense, there's a level of hope here, because again, this is headline-driven that you don't want to see the market get down there and test that, where it can trigger a technical event that hasn't yet happened on the chart. Um, for the time being, that 2800 area, that's our line in the sand. Below that, the conviction level that we see a better test of this 2953,000, um, you know, that, that right now is tentative for the time being. All right. So, Jason, you're the head of fixed income. You do technical analysis. So you are the perfect guy to ask um, when you marry those two charts. I mean, is the bond market sending us a warning sign or is it simply confirming that, you know what, we should be sort of at this middling level on the S&P 500? I, I think it's more of a confirmation. In fact, if you look at the bond market, like we said, it tends to track global PMI, not lead it. If you look at things like semiconductors, uh, industrial metals, we've done a number of pieces on this with the other groups in the firm. Um, they tend to be the leading indicators here, not, not bonds. All right, Jason, great to have you. Thanks for coming by. Jason oh, Hunter you. of J.P. Morgan. What do you think, Tim? Well, yeah, I mean, the correlations are really important. He, you know, he talks about semis. I mean, think about, you know, and we've talked about what was the last time we had kind of this, this growth scare. Dan talked about 2015 into 2016. We bottomed in the S&P before we started to feel like actually we're not going to get a recession in 2016. Guess where semis were back then? The SMH, which now is close to 109, 110, um, was at 52 uh, in the first quarter of 2016. So think about what's run. Think about equities and think about what could happen if we get a place where people are very concerned about you know, it's been one thing to speculate about not being at 2%, let alone 3.2 on GDP. You start to really have a recessionary fear. Um, equities are, 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 have a lot of room down. Yeah, we already see Fed Funds Future saying a 53% chance of a rate cut in September. Right. So here's the scary thing. To your point, Tim, I mean, we went down 20% in a straight line in Q4 of 2018 because of those Someone just called fears. me to tell me there's a recession coming. <laughs> Understood. Sorry, just kidding. Um, Not funny. But, but I guess the real issue is with rates where they are right now, if we do have that growth fear, where do we, we go to QE4? You know, we literally had that 2015 volatility because we had just ended three rounds of QE where the Fed had just bought four and a half trillion dollars worth of bonds just to get us to where we were then. Now, here we are, and we're already talking with Fed funds at two and a quarter about going back to zero and and instituting QE again? I mean, so that's the danger here, is that if you think 20% was a garden variety correction in a secular bull market, what's going to happen if everything goes haywire? We have another crash on our hands. I'm not saying that we're going to crash. What does crash but, mean? Well, a crash means what happened in 2000 and 2003. The S&P lost 55% of its value. And then in 2007 to 2009, it lost 55% of its value. That's what a crash the conditions is. Are to 
we got a news alert here we got to get to uh, on WeWork, the $47 billion unicorn gearing upwards IPO. It's actually We Company. Let's get to Deidre Bosa in San Francisco for the details. Hey, Deidre. Hey, Melissa. WeWork releasing its first quarter financials as it gears up for an IPO. Revenue more than doubled year over year to $728 million. But the company continues to burn through hundreds of millions of dollars. Net losses were $264 million in the quarter, narrowing slightly from the same quarter last year, in part, though, due to some one-time items. Last year, though, losses grew even faster than revenue, totaling $1.9 billion. And that, guys, is more than Uber lost last year. Meanwhile, Enterprise memberships accounting for 40% of total memberships now, which contributes to a larger revenue backlog as these bigger companies typically sign longer contracts. Artie Minson and Vice Chairman Michael Gross telling me on the phone just earlier that the company is in spending mode for its long-term growth. Minson also urged me to look at losses as investments because he said that co-working is a proven business model. And guys, that may hint at the narrative the company will sell to Wall Street as it heads towards its IPO, trying to distance itself from other money-losing unicorns like Uber and Lyft. Now, I did ask if their plans had changed since Uber and Lyft's disappointing debuts. Uh, Minson avoided a direct answer, but he did say simply that he believes the market will evaluate each company individually. We'll see if that's the case. Back to you. All right, Deidre. Thank you, Deidre Bosa. Uh, I find it interesting that they say that co-working is a proven business model when they're losing gobs of money here. I mean, in this market <laughs> environment, after Uber, after Lyft, after their trading, which has been so disappointing, Dan, is there going to be any appetite for this one? It's going to be hard. I mean, it's going to be hard anytime soon. And I think that, you know, here's the thing. I mean, obviously, this has been a very transformative company the way we would have said Lyft and Uber are. Um, I think the fact of the matter is, is that uh, private investors have really liked this sort of innovation and they've been willing to underwrite it. Public investors right now have shown us they are not willing to do that, especially for a company that has a metric that's called community-adjusted EBITDA. Um, you, you know, so, so what the heck they, is that? Well, that's one of the metrics. You like, take out the losing part and then you just... Yeah. And then you have the yes, really good yes, winning yes. part. Well, listen, you know, there's good, a lot yeah. of talk. I mean, listen, <laughs> winning. This, this company is building a huge real estate portfolio, and then they have this this yeah. tech platform. So, there's so be two talk about interest rate sensitive, though. I mean, it, you know, it seems to me that this is a company that would be more sensitive to an economic downturn than anybody. That's just me. Right. I think the reality is you've got to show us a path to making money. Uber hasn't shown us that. Lyft hasn't shown us that. Do these guys have any chance? Losses are investment. Right. Well, that's why I look at all these and I can't (laughs) wait for puts to come out. I can't wait for the options to be delivered because I think all of these things have a lot more downside even from here. All right. Coming up, take a look at where we stand with Cisco earnings. The stock is jumping after hours. We'll hear from the CEO right after this. Plus, NVIDIA down nearly 50 percent from its highs back in October as it gears up for earnings. its earnings report later this week. But one top analyst says the worst is behind the chip stock. He will explain. And later, Aurora flying high after its earnings report. It is the best performing cannabis company this year. The executive chairman will be here to explain what has investors piling into this hot stock. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Cisco jumping after hours. Let's get to John Ford back at headquarters with more. John. Melissa, Cisco is saying tariffs are no longer a significant problem. On the call, executives telling analysts that the company has shifted operations in such a way that the 25% tariff hike is completely factored into its guidance, and that guidance was better than expected, by the way. Cisco got into revenues to grow uh, between 45 and 6.5% in the current quarter. Some low lights, the service provider business had a weaker showing, but Cisco saying that was just natural lumpiness in the Americas. Other areas of the business made up for it. Cisco also touting growth in software and services and security in particular. CEO Chuck Roberts also underscored that in a conversation with our Jim Cramer on Mad Money. Take a listen. Obviously, we're very proud of what our team's accomplished this past quarter, and we've been on this journey to increase the percentage of our business that comes from software and even implementing subscriptions on top of our core networking portfolio, which has gone incredibly well. So whether you look at our collaboration portfolio, our security portfolio, or even our core networking portfolio, we have drastically increased the percentage of software in our business. Consider that a sneak peek. Of course, catch the full conversation on MAD at the top of the hour, guys. All right. Thanks a lot, John. John Fort back at headquarters. Uh, Tim, you like Cisco? I love Cisco. I, I think if you look at the mega cap tech companies, both the combination of their earnings growth, I think the multiple makes the most sense. But more importantly, think about the themes that you're hearing from tech companies in all companies, and it's about security and it's about software, but especially security. I mean, Cisco to me is the company and the solution for so much of the enterprise world. Um, it's important for the market right now that these guys are also talking about enterprise and talking about you know, the world that's not falling apart for them because it's a big tell. You know, core security, all those things are very important, and they actually delivered. And the, the continued growth and the fact that they've been able to distance themselves from all the fears about China right now, I think that's huge. Chuck Robbins doing a great job of deflecting all of that. It's not my favorite. You said it's your favorite. Microsoft's still my favorite. I still think there are different ways, the verticals, that they're going to grow faster than a Cisco. But I love the margins. When you look at the margins at Cisco, every quarter after quarter, you look at these margins. It's impressive. When you're 60-plus percent margins, you're doing something well, right, and that's what they're doing. And that's because of the mixed shift that he's talked right. about this subscription business and, and that that's really why this stock has gone from where did it get to 55 from 35 in the last couple of years listen on friday's options action i highlighted this name excuse me 530 no i listen i took a better stance on this not that i thought that the quarter wasn't going to be good is that given the state of global trade that that the clarity they're going to be able to give wasn't going to be particularly great that being said on friday the stock was at 53 and a quarter it's trading at 5375 in the aftermarket while i'm wrong i don't feel that wrong. Let's see how this thing trades tomorrow because it's not rip roaring out of the were gates. You, were you negative though, or were you actually looking? Because I saw what you saw in the in the options markets, and it looked more protective to me because you've had that big run. You've got that big run all the way up to 55, 57, whatever listen, listen, it was. My view is very simple. Chuck Robbins, you know, he's put together an amazing team since he's taken over. Right. They've executed. They've done a lot of satya sort of things. How they've changed that business model. Um, I'll just tell you, this is not a high growth company though. They have areas of their business that are growing, but it's trading about 17 times, 18 times. 
times trailing. That's a that's a very high multiple you, for this name. Do you think that the multiple be re-rated as they shift their mix yeah, into? Not, not, not they like, never not do. Like Microsoft they should, did. but they never do. They well, never. They never. But, do. but look at this quarter. Okay, look at capex was down twenty. Uh, capex spending from carriers down twenty percent year over year. That's their massive legacy business. Enterprises did just fine. Security's growing and has the subscription higher multiple. It's not that easy of a name to value, and that was one of the issues during the chambers years. For, Let's not for forget years. cash flow, too. Unbelievable cash flow. Okay. Of course, you won't want to miss Jim Cramer's full interview with the CEO and CFO of Cisco on Mad Money. That's tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the trade war heating up as President Trump signs a new executive order to ban foreign communications companies from operating in the United States. Read Huawei. We'll tell you which stocks get hit the hardest. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Chip stocks are surging back. People love comebacks. That's right. And there is something happening that could spell an even bigger rally ahead. That's much more Fast Money right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Semis climbing out of the trade war carnage is the SMH, the ETF that tracks the group, exits correction territory after leaving the market lower. Our Bob Pisani is down at the NYSE with more on that. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Well, so here's the good news. The semiconductor, specifically the SMH, this is the semiconductor ETF, has recovered in the past couple of days. It's now only 9% off its April historic high. That was a historic high in early April. But the bad news is that the fundamentals are still really lousy for this group. Semis are more closely tied to China and trade than any other industry. Many companies like Qualcomm and Micron, they get a substantial part of their revenues from China. Just look at this here, as much as 64% in Qualcomm's case. We have heard recently from semiconductor groups, some Texas Instruments, Intel, Qualcomm. Texas Instruments said demand continued to slow across most markets with no second half recovery. A similar story with Intel. They said no second half recovery. They lowered their revenue expectations. Qualcomm also expects to be lower this year for their earnings. Semiconductor exports from South Korea have also been down. And in the U.S., there have been reports of high semiconductor inventories. Now, Finally, the chip companies aren't cheap. Many names trade around 20 to 30 times forward earnings. 
These trade typically as low as 10 times earnings at their bottoms, by the way. That's what I mean when I say they're not cheap. Only Intel, in my opinion, is looking cheap after dropping 25% this month. A lot of flashing lights here, in my opinion. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Bisani. Bob mentioned Intel. Maybe it's trading down for a very good reason because it warned a couple of times in a row. Pete, where do you stand on chips, especially as these trade tensions Yeah, I definitely. Up? I mean, obviously, they're right square in the bullseye of everything. Mm-hmm. So um, do I still own Intel? Absolutely. Am I happy about the direction in this big fall to the downside? No. I mean, but I still believe in the company. Obviously, that weakness that they forecast is something that's concerning. Concerning. And I think when we heard hear from NVIDIA, now we're going to know, is this just an Intel problem or does this extend even further out? Because I think we've heard from a few other names, but this is a direct competitor to Intel. Well, and, and go back to that, that Texas Instruments call, too. Where they, they just pointed out the cycle, basically, for chips. And yeah. they said, look, we're, we're a couple quarters away from, from really being out of this cycle of a downturn. And, and so everybody's all over the map here. I realize that the chip space is incredibly diverse in terms of the underlying usage. And you have commoditized chips and you have high-growth chips that no one you know, can even come close to. But the bottom line here is Intel, to me, is the safest bet, especially for a company that's derated in the last three weeks. I was it saying that. It reflects all the concerns. Yeah, well, because I, I think it's more than priced it in. I, I was saying that before it was priced in. So um, I'd better be saying it now unless I've changed my view on Intel, and I haven't. All right. Well, Pete mentioned NVIDIA reporting earnings tomorrow. Dan, what are you seeing in the options? Yeah, so big implied move. I mean, I think Intel's movement over the last month since earnings has really kind of caught investors off guards. But this one, obviously, we know NVIDIA is generally pretty volatile. The implied move in the options market is about 7.5%. That's about 12 bucks. You would just take the May 17th weekly straddle, the 160 straddle, cost you 12 bucks. If you buy that and buy the implied movement, you need a move of greater than 12 bucks between now and Friday's close. On average, this thing is traded um, about 7% the next day in either direction. There's been two massive gaps, though, looking back to November. We have a one-year chart. I think it's important to remember that, obviously, this thing was down 60 or so percent from its all-time highs um, at one point earlier this year. Um, and look what it did on that rally back. It went back and it basically filled in that gap. Since then, it's been down about 20%. It's still up 20% of the year. It's going to be an important number, I think, for sentiment in the semi All right. For more on NVIDIA, let's bring in James Wang. He's currently an analyst with ARK Invest, which is an investor in the company. And he worked at NVIDIA for nine years on their PC gaming application. So he knows the company and their products very well. James, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. I I think that there are two main buckets of concerns for NVIDIA. And so let's first address number one, and that is the impact of the trade war. What do you think they're going to say tomorrow? So far, they haven't said too much about the impact of the trade war. The, the, when you look at NVIDIA's chart and you wonder what has happened, it's really all about crypto and cryptocurrency mining from a year ago. So that's had a cascading effect. Uh, basically, people who are mining uh, non-Bitcoin, like Ethereum, are buying tons of GPUs. Um, and then now that those crashes have fallen, they, they're no longer selling those. So they need a few quarters, as they've said, to clear the channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think AMD in their recent call said that they're starting to see the channel clear. So, so I think the setup for NVIDIA is really about the guidance into second half. Do they still believe in that bounce back? Um, if they ha- still have that intact, I think investors feel fa- fairly good about that. The other concern is the competitive concern. You mentioned AMD, and that certainly is a competitor. But even emerging competitors who are not necessarily in the chip space, we have you on really because I saw your post on ARK Invest, sure. um, and it talked about Tesla's move into chips, yes. making its own chip. Why does it need to go to NVIDIA? Is that a threat? Ultim- I mean, you're... Your firm is invested in both. Yes. um, But is that a threat to NVIDIA's business? It is not a threat. In fact, Tesla going hardcore, designing their own chips, is probably the best thing that will happen for NVIDIA. And here's why. 
When Tesla goes full mode, full craziness into autonomy and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do this ahead of everyone else, it's basically saying to the rest of the auto industry, you need to invest. If you don't invest, you will be behind. You will not even be feature parity versus our cars. So if you're a Ford, if you're a GM and you don't want to fall behind, you have to go to the best chip supplier that can provide something that's comparable to the Tesla solution. And NVIDIA is the only company out there who is providing chips that's comparable to the Tesla solution. There are a lot of autonomy efforts going on right now. So is NVIDIA the primary supplier for a Waymo, for a Ford, for a GM, wherever else is operating? The primary suppliers are basically NVIDIA and Mobileye, which is an, uh, yeah. a division of Intel. Um, Mobileye is really coming in from the low end, what they call ADAS, basically trying to prevent you from crashing. NVIDIA is coming in from the high end with an AI perspective. They want to do computer vision and, and autonomous driving. So those are the two primary competitive forces. Um, NVIDIA has already said that they're going to offer an, a, a level 5 solution. Mobileye's level 5 solution is still further out. So I think if you feel the pressure from Tesla as an auto executive and you want to be on feature parity and you want control over your software stack, NVIDIA provides that for you. Tesla bears are, and there are plenty of them out there, Tesla bears. That is. Yes, <laughs> are you going to take a look day. at that shift, that, that tes- <laughs> the, the picture that Tesla provided and said, you know, this is phony. There's no way that Tesla could actually catch up to an NVIDIA and make its own chip. How, how could that have happened? I have, um, I'm quite puzzled by what they mean. Um, uh-huh. the, the Tesla computer is shipping in every model Tesla car today out the factory. This is, better, is this a better chip than NVIDIA? This is, a, this is a chip that NVIDIA will be able to build, roughly speaking, maybe in a year or two. And the reason is Tesla only has to build its chip to satisfy its own software requirements. Whereas when NVIDIA builds a chip, they're like Intel, right? They're an arms supplier. They have to satisfy Ford's requirements, Toyota's requirements. Everyone wants something on the silicon or wants it to do something. And then all of a sudden you have a complicated chip because you're satisfying many customers. One's a horizontal play, one is a vertical play. Right. Last question. Would you rather... <laughs> we love this game, James. Yeah. You, have, you have to play. Tesla or NVIDIA? Tesla or NVIDIA? Like I think, better, better I think for this audience, I think NVIDIA is probably a gut risk adjusted uh, better stock because you're not going to go through the volatility of Elon. You're not going to go through this um, overhang of, of liquidity and raising, de- uh, raising capital. NVIDIA has, you know, their cash is, they're flush with cash. They will continue to grow top line. They will eventually grow bottom line as well. All right. James, thanks so much for coming by. We really appreciate it. James Wang of ARK Invest. I'm going to pose that same question to you. Um, NVIDIA. I mean, listen, if NVIDIA misses and guides down, it's going back to those lows that it was just at, you know, six months ago or something like that. Um, and, but I agree with his uh, thought process on it. The only thing is, is like if you're buying NVIDIA only because the autonomy um, opportunity, it's probably years off. And that's what the Tesla bears are trying to tell you, that Elon's stuck on the autonomy thing right now because it's probably one of the sexiest stories when sales of EV are really slowing. I, I, look, I've, I've spoken to Kathy Wood, uh, and, and we've heard this from James. The, the argument on Tesla has to be that they've got such a competitive advantage or such an advantage on the data front um, because it's not an auto company and, and it's not a technology company. So you have to believe that. And, and ultimately, it gets back to where they have a competitive advantage in a moat. Um, and, you know, uh, certainly in nanotechnology, it sounds like you know, the chip is something that, that people are banking on. Um, the end of the day, it's still a company that needs to deliver and has cash flow issues. And I, that's where I think the bears are lining up. Coming up, President Trump taking the latest shot in the trade war, declaring a national emergency, signing an executive order to ban foreign communications companies that could pose a threat to national security. We'll tell you how that could impact a number of popular Chinese tech stocks. Plus, Aurora soaring on earnings today, making it the best performing pot stock this year. The executive chairman will be here to tell us what is next in the cannabis craze when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on President Trump declaring a national emergency and blocking foreign communications companies that could pose a threat to national security from operating in the United States. Eamon Javers is live at the White House. Eamon. Melissa, I've just been talking to some officials inside the West Wing about this executive order, and the points they're emphasizing are, one, uh, that the phrase Huawei does not appear anywhere in this executive order, and two, they say that this was entirely unrelated to the breakdown of trade talks, even though observers on the outside will certainly look at the timing and say, uh, boy, that's coincidental that this action happens right as the trade talks with the Chinese break down. But here's what the executive order does, according to the White House readout, which they put out late in the afternoon today. They're saying that what the president's done here is declared a national emergency with respect to threats against information and communications technology. It delegates authority to the Secretary of Commerce to prohibit transactions posing an unacceptable risk to the national security of the United States. So uh, they're going to give the Commerce Secretary here uh, a lot of new authorities to go ahead and reach into the economy and stop any transactions that he thinks in this telecom and communications space uh, could poten potentially pose a threat to the United States. It all comes at a time when the United States has been making the case uh, with European allies that Huawei, the Chinese telecom company, uh, is simply not trustworthy uh, because they could bake in some back doors into their systems that could allow Chinese spies access to information. Here, the administration saying the, the Commerce Secretary will have the ability to block transactions it views as problematic, not saying anything right mm -hmm. now is blocked, but that authority now will exist for the Commerce Secretary. It was widely expected, Eamon, that th they wouldn't name any companies within this executive order, but at right. the same time, perhaps was it by design so that, you know, Wilbur Ross down the road could decide that another Chinese company, another foreign company uh, is a threat to the communication system of the United States, whether it be a chip company or, or another sort of technology company? Sure. It gives them the opportunity to ban transactions on a one-off basis. Mm -hmm. uh, it also gives them the, the uh, authority to single out individual companies if they so choose. Now, there's going to be a review uh, and, you know, intelligence gathering procedure here. And so nothing is happening immediately. But these new authorities do give the Commerce Secretary a lot of new power here, uh, potentially to be used against Huawei or other companies that the U.S. deems to be a threat. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers you for us at the White House. When you hear this, uh, the, these tensions ratcheting up in terms of tensions the U.S. with, uh, with uh, Huawei, do you think the trade war is going worse than expected? Sure, you have to. Um, think about it. threats against communications technology. That quote, um, that's exactly the root of, of really, I think, a lot of, of this trade war. If you want to, this isn't about farmers. This isn't about, um, you know, ag exports. This is not about autos. This is, this is about technology. It's about technology transfer, technology theft, intellectual property, uh, and control of the new world order. I mean, think about the last time we had one of these, not the last time, but think about when we, we've, we ruled against the Chinese buying Unical and, and, and we, we thought yeah. natural resources were, were national security issues. That was, again, a, a, an edict that came from the White House. Amazing how times have changed, but it's the same thing. And, and I think you know, this is the root of this trade war. Very similar to the, you know, the CFO being arrested. And, right. Right. Mm. Really, it, it doesn't help. I think, you know, ratcheting up the tension. I, I, don't, I don't really get the strategy here of what seems to be just kind of spraying gunfire and then trying to pull it back. I don't really get it. Which, so, bottom line, it's not great for the market. Yeah. All right. Uh, coming up, the latest round of 13F filings are out. You will not believe what the smart money has been buying in the rally. That's next. Plus, Wall Street's hot for pot. Check out Aurora, Canopy, and Kronos all soaring this year. So what have these stocks growing like weeds? The executive chairman of Aurora will be here when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Aurora Cannabis lighting up on the back of its earnings report last night. The company missing Wall Street expectations, but still posting a 20 percent jump quarter on quarter sales. Aurora now the best performing pot stock this year, up more than 70 percent. For more on the earnings results and the state of the cannabis industry, let's bring in Michael Singer, executive chairman at Aurora Cannabis. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, It's an exciting time in cannabis. You've got recreational sales going on along with medical. Where do you see that pie shifting to in a year or two years? And I guess embedded in that question is how do margins look once that shift occurs? Um, I'm presuming that medical marijuana has higher margins than the recreational side. So they do, yes. Our our focus uh, is really right now in three different buckets. So we continue to build out our international footprint. Um, we're currently in 24 countries. We're, you know, the first uh, or, or first mover in each of those uh, or most of those countries. We see that as a tremendous opportunity where we have very limited uh, competition. And so for us, it's about uh, continuing to build out that global footprint. We're also focused on uh, the U.S. market. Uh, that's a market, obviously, that is too big to ignore. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're in the middle of creating a very unique uh, strategy so that we could leverage, obviously, everything in our uh, in our grasp so that we could take advantage of um, of course, uh, to some extent, two prongs that we the, the way we look at that market. One is obviously CBD, and we want to certainly operate within the federal regulations that currently exist, and those obviously are very limited. Um, we expect those to expand over time. And, and through Australis, which is a company that we created uh, last year and spun out to our shareholders, um, Australis will play, and, and they operate as a small MSO in the U.S., they'll play a part in our overall U.S. strategy, and we're, sort of, we're going to leverage um, our relationship with Australis to ensure that we continue to deliver on a, mar- a more global U.S. type strategy. Um, and third, and maybe most important, is we're continuing to explore a different number of partnerships with the help of Nelson Peltz. As you recall, we engaged Nelson as a strategic advisor uh, recently, um, and our relationship with Nelson is nothing but amazing. Um, Nelson is, as you know, a very thoughtful, experienced, um, and very strategic thinker, um, and very well connected in the consumer goods, uh, and ironically in the, or or surprising to us, at least the pharma space. Um, You know, our model was very different than than our peers, uh, where our peers decided to partner with one and potentially give away control of their business. We always felt the the strategy for us was to uh, engage with multiple partners in different market segments. And so with the help of Nelson, we're exploring a number of potential partnerships uh, in some very key market segments. Are you you taking a swipe at acreage then? Do you think that that deal was a bad deal? I mean, could you see deals like that happen again? Is that some sort of template, do you think, for the industry? I mean, it's a deal we understand, of course. Is that a deal that that, that makes sense for Aurora? Um, Not at this time. Um, You know, our our strategy is going to be a little different than that. For us, we don't feel it's necessarily important to pick one horse today. We're really looking across the entire value chain in the U.S., and we're looking at, uh, you know, opportunities that'll help us determine where do we want to play along that value chain. And so we'll, we'll make decisions that are in the best interest of our company and our shareholders. We're patient, as we've always been, um, and we'll sh- ensure that when we make the decision to, uh, to operate in the U.S., it's going to be one where we see a long-term potential. Hey, Michael, it's Tim Seymour. Thanks for coming on. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about some of these, these new dot-coms that, that aren't making money. Should we be concerned about the cannabis, uh, you know, multinationals, and we'll call you that because you certainly are, um, that are not making money? Or tell us about the road to profitability. So our story is a little different. We put out some guidance very early in the year, um, and, and we put a stake in the ground that forced us to be very disciplined about yep. our business. Uh, we said, one, we were going to um, uh, you know, obviously ensure that we, we were very careful about managing our expenses. Uh, and the stake we put in the ground was that in Q4, which is the April to June timeframe, would, we would be uh, EBITDA positive. 
Um, based on the results we just delivered, our, our revenues are up, um, our margins are up, uh, our production volumes are up significantly. They've doubled uh, in Q3 versus Q2. Um, and based on the discipline we've, we've, uh, we've instilled in, in our, uh, for example, our SG&A, where we've, we've, to some extent, stabilized those expenses, um, and now with revenues increasing significantly, we feel we're, you know, we're on track to deliver um, positive EBITDA starting in the fourth quarter of this year. So that's a game changer for us. Our facilities are all coming online. We're, you know, our Sky facility is now operating at capacity. And so the volumes coming out of that facility will enable us to continue to tap into the different um, channels that, that exist for us. Of course, the Canadian medical, the Canadian recreational, and the European um, or the international medical markets are something that we're very focused on today. Should we expect some sort of deal or partnership with a major consumer products company, given Nelson Peltz's involvement with your company? That's our end game, of course. Yeah. We expect we expect that we will, uh, you know, that we will at some point um, uh, announce some type of partnership. What I could tell you is um, Nelson is incredibly engaged with us, um, and we're putting all resources to ensure that. The deals we make are the ones that make sense. Um, you know, we're, we're actually prioritizing which of the market segments we want to participate in first, second, and so on. Uh, and so we're already engaging in those type of discussions. They take time. Uh, we're, we're, we're patient, um, but we're very excited about the, the, the status of those discussions. And of course, with Nelson and his team's involvement, um, they are uh, incredibly helpful and incredibly thoughtful about right. how we're thinking about our partnering opportunities. Michael, great to see you. Thank you. Michael Thank Singer, you. Executive Chairman at Aurora Cannabis. Tim? Uh, I would say Aurora's got the best track record, certainly uh, the track record of the most acquisitive out there. They filed a $750 million shelf recently, so you, sh you should look for them to do stuff. But again, being positive Q3 or Q4 uh, EBITDA-wise, that's impressive, and I think the market should reward that. Coming up, tech, a big theme in the latest round of 13F filings. We'll tell you which one of our favorite, of your favorite bank stocks the smart money is buying. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The latest 13F filings are out. Leslie Pickers back at headquarters with the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. Tech appears to be back in vogue during the first quarter. Many high-profile names adding to their FANG positions. David Tepper's Appaloosa increased its stake in Facebook by 40% to hold more than half a billion shares. Soros and ThirdPoint built new positions in Netflix, while Tiger Global upped its stake in Netflix. Berkshire Hathaway disclosed the size of its stake in Amazon, 483,000 shares, worth roughly shy of a billion dollars at today's closing price. Warren Buffett told CNBC last week that he was not the one making these purchases, but one of his other portfolio managers was really behind the buy in Amazon. But not all FANG names are loved equally, as many of the fund managers we cover made bearish moves in Alphabet, Corvex, Glenview, Tiger Management, each decreasing their stake in uh, Google's parent company, Soros actually dissolved it. But Soros did take a new stake in Lyft, about 200,000 shares of Class A stock that appears to be in addition to the Class B shares he acquired from Carl Icahn ahead of the IPO. Now, a reminder that all of these positions are as of the end of March and may have changed in the six weeks since. Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker back at headquarters. Karen, what stood out to you? Uh, well, Google. I mean, yeah. today, obviously, a lot of good activity in Google, but it shouldn't have been where it was going into today. I think it was both fundamentals. We had a couple of analysts, I think, raise a price target. I don't know. I think we'll, we'll March. Whoever sold it by the end of March, that was decent timing. I still like it here. Up forty-five dollars doesn't change. I look at, at the all. Amazon and, and and Buffett and the fact that Buffett wasn't the guy pulling the trigger, and it's a fairly small position when you consider Berkshire Hathaway. So I mean, I, I look at that, and that makes much more sense now. 
Because I think everybody read into that, hey, Warren Buffett's buying this company. And you know what? He really wasn't. And it was somebody else underneath him. So I also like what I see in Facebook because I'm a believer as well. And I think it's still too cheap. I think there's upside. I'll just say this about 13Fs. I, I, I care more about Warren Buffett's 13Fs than anybody's because it, that's the type of investor he is. I mean, ultimately, um, if I get a 13F from a major hedge fund and we know who the major hedge fund managers are, I have no idea what that position means today. Yeah. So Warren Buffett, long term. Yeah, and I would just say this. It's going to be consistent for all of 2019. Even if we stay volatile, MAGA, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon, they're going to be the ones that they always buy on pullbacks as long as there's not something structural that changes in their business. We should have a hat that said MAGA. Yeah, Wouldn't it's really nice? catchy. It should be red. Final trades. Time for the final trade, Petey. Going into ASCO. I like what I saw today. Amgen buying calls. Giddy up. Timmy. We talked about Cisco a lot tonight, and the, the conversation is about what's the multiple you want to pay for this company that was formerly a hardware company, now is a software and security company. I think it's higher than 17. I'm long. Chairwoman. Yes, two things. Hiding out, that's sort of something not, not in the China crossfire, eBay. Also, speaking of investors with 13Fs who have very long time frames, Valpost, new position. Dan. Hey, Karen, did you check out how the Macy's traded today? I the saw Macy's. it. Tim's yeah. Macy's. Horrible. If Walmart, <laughs> if, if Walmart can't <laughs> rally tomorrow, <laughs> you want to like, sell like the XRT right now, my and then you want to sell it again. Holy Biggest cow. Biggest dig in the last five seconds. I mean, that does rest you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. <laughs> What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.